for me personally, I mean, it took one thing to be successful in combat. It takes something very different to be successful in my current life. So just making sure I'm always looking for those things and leaning into them. You're listening to the Justice for Vets podcast when thank you is not enough. Hosted by retired Major General Butch Tate. This podcast is made possible with funding from the Bureau of Justice Assistance. Hi, this is Butch Tate, and welcome to the Justice for Vets podcast, When Thank You is Not Enough. I'll be your guide for these discussions, not only in today's episode, but in future episodes of the podcast. But I'm happy to report that uh, this podcast is not about me. As attractive as it might sound to sit and listen to a lawyer for 30 minutes talk to you, I assure you it's not about me, it's about our guests. I do want to provide you a little bit of context. Every soldier, every, every veteran uh, understands the importance of context. What's the, what's the environment in which I'm, in, I'm operating? What is the perspective I'm bringing to it? What is the, the surrounding factors? And so a, a little bit of a context. Uh, I'm an Army brat, probably a, a title I am the most proud of. My dad was a 36-year infantryman, E-1 to Colonel, two combat tours in Vietnam, Purple Heart Combat Infantryman's Badge. Learned a lot from uh, watching Pop how we took care of soldiers. But again, not about me and certainly not about my Pop. Uh, But from the time, just like uh, our first guest, James Poling, from the time that I was in high school, a junior in high school, I no kidding had decided I wanted to be a soldier and I wanted to be a lawyer. And that led to 31 years of active duty service for me, all as a judge advocate. But, you know, I had to leave at some point. Uh, and I'll get James to talk about his um, sort of next chapter when he departed active duty. But when I left, I was, I was looking for that right next chapter. Um, and, and really how I found it, uh, that next chapter is captured in uh, the title of this podcast, When Thank You Is Not Enough. Uh, the title and the purpose of the podcast uh, really are the same, and, and that is what are we going to choose to do as a nation to ensure that we care for our veterans as they make that transition to civilian life, and then we help them deal with the challenges that may have occurred during their service. Now, to be sure, uh, it is with gratitude that I receive someone's comment as I'm walking through the airport. I was in uniform, and they say, thank you for your service. I, I get it. They, they really meant well by that, and I appreciate it. All of us do. But, but borrowing from Ken Fisher of uh, the famed Fisher Houses on our military installations that provide uh, temporary housing for families uh, who have loved ones in our military hospitals, it, it, is, it is much more than just saying thank you. We're at a point where that statement of appreciation has to be followed by tangible actions to demonstrate uh, not only do we say thank you for your service, but we're going to do things to show you that we are grateful for your service. And we have a choice as a nation. I mean, the, the choice is, as we've done at Justice for Vets, is to, to choose person-centered solutions to help vets deal with some of the challenges that may have occurred during their service. And, and, and those solutions get at the, the segment of vets that are shouldering the burdens of trauma, whether it's battlefield trauma, whether it's military sexual trauma, or whether it's trauma that occurred during training. I don't want anybody to think that, that trauma is limited to the battlefield. But the solutions must include a path from, for example, battlefield trauma to hope, recovery, and restoration to help vets find their right next 
chapter. Not always an easy path for sure. It's a path um, that's different for everyone. You, you, you can't just look at somebody else's path and go, well, I'm going to do that because it, it's your journey. And during these podcasts, we want to hear from those vets who have found that path and sort of achieve that, that, that recovery and that restoration that we hope they all will achieve. But we also want to reach out to those vets who just haven't decided yet that they want to take that first step or just exactly how to take that first step. And that brings me to our first guest, uh, our first guest on, on our first session of the podcast. So, uh, James, I, I hope you are as honored to have that, that status as first guest as, as I am honored to have you in that capacity. Our first guest found his path, and he took a journey, and, and you won't believe where it ended up. I mean, like James and I have talked about, who knew as he started down this, this, his path, his path from battlefield trauma to recovery, restoration, and, and certainly hope. And I'll have James talk about that a little bit later on. But, you, you know, if you're listening, you couldn't guess what that, where that path ended up. But it's a, it's a powerful story. It's a story that I first heard at a conference this past summer, and I was captivated by it, as was the audience, the audience of 6,500 attendees. And then I had the chance really the privilege to talk to James afterwards to, to really get into his story and get, get to know him. And again, a powerful story that I hope resonates with uh, all of you. So that leads me now to introducing our first guest, uh, James Poling. Now, James, I'm not going to pretend that, you know, we've never met before. Uh, I'm not going to, as I said, I talked to you for a, probably bent your ear for an hour at conference. So I still apologize for that, but I just couldn't, <laughs> couldn't, let you walk away until I had heard your entire story. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. You, you're being nice, um, but I appreciate you being nice, right? So, James, I'd like you to just take a minute or two, as I did, and introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, thanks. Which, and I, I do want to say thank you. It is an honor to be your first guest on the podcast um, and happy to be here. Um, so yeah, James Poling. I joined the Army when I was 17. I'm from Northeast Ohio. And as Butch mentioned earlier, uh, from a young age, I knew I wanted to be in the military. I was a freshman in high school during 9-11. Um, so the war was going on as I was you know, getting closer to enlistment age. And I, I knew not only did I want to join the military, but I wanted to fight. I had this idea that I would, you know, if I have some moment of self-discovery, I think like most young people, I was trying to figure out really who I was. And I thought that this was the best route forward at the time. Um, so I joined the army. Uh, I was an infantry guy in the 82nd Airborne Division for a little over eight years. I did three years in Afghanistan with them as a 240 machine gunner and then a team leader and squad leader on my second and third deployments. Um, I saw a little bit of little bit of everything uh, to see over there, and when I came home, I recognized that I was having a hard time finding examples of individuals with similar experiences to my own that have successfully made that transition. It's not because they're not there; I just didn't know where to look, and so it led me down this path of trying to to find my own way forward and dealing with those traumas. So, James, how many years did you serve in the army? A little over eight years total. I was in. Uh, I actually managed to spend my entire line time on one platoon, 
or in, in one platoon going from a uh, ammo bear to acting platoon sergeant. And what's the, what's the time frame for that eight years? I joined in August, 2005. I got out December, 2013. Thanks. And in that eight years, three combat tours, and as all the vets know who are listening, it's not just the combat tour, it's the ramp up to that tour, and it's the ramp down when, when you come back home. So as I'm doing the math here, uh, and I mean, I'm a public school graduate from the state of Kansas, proud of that, but as I do this math, basically all you did is either get ready to deploy, deploy, or recover from deployment. Fair statement? And it's a pretty good summary of my time, yeah. So and you said you saw a little bit of everything. Um, you know, I've talked to you before about this, but I'm always fascinated by, of your battlefield experiences, how did you cope in the moment and how did you cope the next day after that moment had passed? Yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, uh, a disclaimer to to put out on the front end, I, I'm, I feel very fortunate that um, unlike some of the men I served with, I, I never had to watch any of my friends burn. Um, outside of that, I think I, I, I saw most of, of what could be seen. Um, I think in the moment when you find yourself in those intense, violent moments, specifically those intense, violent moments where you are also seeing your friends injured and killed, um, there, there's almost a required immediate detachment emotionally from everything so that you can continue doing what you're doing there. Uh, and I think that then goes on to cause issues later as you look to try and reconnect with those emotions. Uh, but I, I think it's, it, it's necessary in that moment if there's any chance at accomplishing the mission. Now, I, I will not and never have pretended for a second that my deployment experience was, was like yours. That's why I find this so fascinating to understand in your case how you you developed that emotional detachment and were able to not only continue with the fight that day in that moment but then get up and do it again the next day and not just you but your soldiers you were you know as you said in leadership positions how did you help your soldiers get up and do it again the next day i i think that you know the the camaraderie is something that uh, a lot of people that haven't experienced the military lifestyle can, I think, easily overlook as they uh, look at some of the issues we deal with coming home. Uh, but really that, that camaraderie, that, that tribalism runs so deep that you know, you're leaning into each other and you develop your own unique mechanisms of coping. You know, for, for some, it'll be humor. Uh, for some, it'll be throwing themselves into uh, you know, the mission, some it's learning. Um, you know, I, I know for me, there was that detachment and then it, it was humor as much as possible. Um, and then at the same time, you're just constantly pushing down any, any thoughts of the individuals you lost. Um, you're trying to prevent yourself from grieving. Cause I know at least in my case, I was worried that if in the moment I let myself grieve, my guys might see that as uh, some, some idea that maybe I had been, my leadership had been compromised. Maybe I wasn't going to be as effective. Um, so I, I would just continue bearing it, focusing on the mission and, and trying to employ the humor as much as possible, um, which of course is 
tough to do in those times. Um, but we, we do have a relatively morbid sense of humor. So I think if, if anyone looks for the silver linings, it's, it's probably us. Yeah. And I think again, uh, I'll just put it out there. I think only a vet could understand how we would find humor in any of the experiences you had that led to, uh, your, your battlefield trauma. Uh, you, you touched on this and, and I want to explore it a little bit. What was it like coming home? You came home, if you will, three different times. Um, Mm -hmm. What was it like coming home? What was the, the, how did you make that transition? Then we'll talk a little bit later about your transition to, you know, out of the, out of the army. Yeah, I think, I think each one was different. Um, You know, I, I joined at such a young age that I think I was developing and maturing individually while living through these experiences. So my first deployment when I left, I was about 18, maybe I had just turned 19. Uh, and I'd, I'd seen a good bit of fighting on, on that deployment. That was where we would see, you know, corner to corner, door to door fighting type of stuff in Afghanistan. Um, I, I didn't lose anyone close to me on that deployment as well. And so I came back with this I, I guess I guess some people would call it like the an infantryman's arrogance. Um, I came back feeling invincible. Uh, I, I was always looking for a similar type of thrill. At the same time, it was the first time I experienced the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Uh, and I was I was just going for a walk one night uh, near my dad's house, and he lived by a hospital. And a life flight helicopter was coming in. And completely caught me off guard, but I heard the helicopter and then immediately my heart rate spiked. I started getting nauseous. I was jittery. Um, I I couldn't physically control my body. And so I was just standing there trying to catch my breath and completely caught me off guard. Uh, I I didn't even know that it was something that would potentially happen at the time. Um, So I kind of leaned into that leading up to my next deployment. I would sit around and I would try to physically trigger myself. And the more I did it, the more I was able to dilute that physical response. Um, I would almost think of it at the time as kind of like like bleeding it out. Um, The more I more I relived it internally, the more I was able to uh, to manage it. And so I was working on that as I deployed the second time. Second time I started that deployment as a team leader and then quickly became a squad leader. Uh, lost a friend on that deployment. And then when I came back, it kind of, it had reshaped how I viewed the war. It became much more serious. I was more mature. I understood the stakes a little more. Uh, and, and that's where I think a bit of depression started to creep in. At the same time, I'm still out there looking for some semblance of excitement. I'm, I'm riding around in a sports car with guns in bad neighborhoods. I'm 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 looking for somebody to interact with me in a way that might, you know, spark my adrenaline again. It was something that I I found myself constantly looking for. And then coming back from my third deployment, uh, a a woman who I'd been with for about four and a half years, uh, I wanted to get married when we came back, she'd left me. and, And luckily I was just mature enough to recognize that I hadn't treated her well. And so coming back from that deployment, uh, I started to lean into working on myself a little bit and really kind of understanding what those combat experiences 
had done to shape who I was at that point. Now, now James, we'll talk about, you, you might be one of the luckiest guys I know. We'll, we'll talk about this, the risky behavior that you, you and, and so many other vets have engaged in post-deployment. But before we get to that, um, the symptoms you're describing, the reactions you're describing, I'm assuming you saw that in, in others, or were there those where none of that battlefield trauma seemed to, to take hold? Yeah, and of, of course I'm not seeing everyone all the time, but there are individuals who I, I've seen that are, and not only are they amazing leaders in combat, um, but they come home and they seem to just be able to seamlessly transition to amazing you know, fathers and husbands and um and and I was always I always looked up to them. And at the same time, I was always a little jealous because I felt like I couldn't do that. If I had to put myself in one mindset to be able to go out and and get into the firefights and almost look forward to what I was going to get into there. But then when I would come home, I would have a really hard time setting down that mentality to do things like be present with my family. Um, you know, I, I found myself that emotional detachment really kind of bled over. I, I came across calloused and, um, and it, it was something I really had no idea how to fix that. But I, of course I was always in awe of the individuals that were able to seamlessly do that. Like I mentioned, but I, at the same time, I saw that, uh, same issue with a lot of other people we'd served with. And of course, you know, on the lion units, at the time, I can't speak for it now. Uh, if you were having some issues and you were interested in seeking mental health help, um, nobody would stop you from doing that, but it was likely that it would affect your job within the unit. Um, if you were seen as somebody who was constantly seeking mental health treatment, uh, maybe having some hard times dealing with some of the experiences, um, it, it was it was always kind of thought that leadership would then look to to move those individuals into an area that they thought might be safer for them. Um, but from our perspective, that consequence would be losing the camaraderie you have with your men, lose, losing that cohesion. And so you, you just hide it as much as you can. And it comes out on weekends when you get a call from someone you served with and, you know, three of you guys have to go over to their apartment and help them get through the night. Uh, it's just kind of how we, we dealt with it there. And we continue to just kind of kick that can down the road while we're deploying. You know, James, that's, and that's why I asked the question because you, the different soldiers had different reactions to, to their environment and you really never know what they're hiding or what they're not revealing about their reaction. But it, to me, underscores the importance of all of us recognizing that, um, there are different paths. For, for everyone. Everybody kind of starts at a different starting line. They choose the path that might work for them. And we have to be, um, as we look for solutions, we have to be open to the idea that, you know, it, it's your path. It's the one that works for you. It's your journey. It's not going to be like someone else's. You know, I want to I talk about one other area that, b before I get into your transition to um, your, your civilian life, and, and, and that is military culture. You know, but before I do, let me let me just go back to this stigma idea. Um, you know, it, it's it's something that the military still struggles with. You you can have one or two senior officers come out, uh, general officers, and say, 
hey, there's no big deal. I went to therapy. You, you and I both know that the staff sergeant down in the unit is not that does not resonate because it's hard to connect with that three or four star who says, yeah, I went to therapy, no stigma, I'm good to go. Um, th- that's not enough to help destigmatize those who seek uh, mental health support for their their battlefield trauma or, or for that matter, any other trauma. So, you know, we, we'll urge the military to continue to work on that because it's just, you and I both know, and every vet listening to this knows, you do not want to show weakness to your soldiers. Um, and I say soldier, I mean, I know this is this is a joint discussion, but but that's the environment that, that you and I grew up in. So it's it's tough to show that that weakness because it has second and third order effects. That's all part of our military culture. And that's my next question to you. Did, did you see the military culture as having a negative or a positive impact on how you dealt with battlefield trauma, or, or maybe it had both, but, but that military culture is an important part of this discussion. I'd like your thoughts on that. I, I, think, I think the only negative uh, side effect of the military culture, in my experience, was, was me delaying facing some of the issues I was facing. Um, I, I couldn't have asked for a better support system. I was there with individuals that understood you know, my traumas, they had similar traumas, we leaned on each other. And in that support group really allowed you to, to feel comfortable, feel okay, sharing your experiences. Of, of course, you're openly discussing with each other, um, you know, the some of the things that you'd seen on deployments where maybe you weren't together. And, and it, it is therapeutic in its own way. Um, at the same time, yeah, there, there, it did seem like there was an inability to seek professional help. And if I'm being completely honest with myself, uh, I probably would have thought I didn't need to seek professional help at the time. I, I would have said, you know, no, I got this. I'm fine. Um, you know, let's keep rolling. The, the classic, I'm good. I got this. Exactly. Roger out. Good to go. The classics. But that's a great transition to how I want to, you know, sort of finish out this this podcast. Um, let, let's just suffice to say that you, as you transitioned, even before you transitioned, you engaged in some some risky behavior because that's where, as you and I've discussed before, not to put words in your mouth, certainly, but, you know, that was the adrenaline rush, that same rush that or close to it that you felt in combat. So you engage in that risky behavior. As I said, you're one of the luckiest guys I know because law enforcement never seemed to quite um, see you at that moment, um, with some exception. But, but what I really want you to share with with our listeners is, you know, what was the catalyst to get you to stop engaging in that risky behavior, and start you on your path to to where you are today? Could you could you just talk about the catalyst that made the change for you? Yeah, yeah, and I think some of my luck might be attributed to, and I know my my father's going to hate me saying this, but I grew up on a used car lot, so. When I did have interactions with law enforcement, I generally did a decent job of getting myself out of it. I remember being handcuffed to a pool at Myrtle Beach for a couple hours, and I ended up like getting them to let me go so I could make it back to my first formation because I was wasn't going to make it back. Hey, that's a story uh, I hadn't heard yet. You're holding out. Yeah, on me. I know you didn't know that one. Um, so, yeah, I mean, really, the moment for me though, where I recognized that that I needed to adjust the behavior 
I was at Fort Bragg. I was pulling out of uh, one of those plazas full of strip clubs and massage parlors um, that I'm pretty sure were blacklisted. So we weren't allowed to go to them anyway. Uh, and as I was pulling out, a woman came up to the driver's side of my car and uh, she was a prostitute. She was trying to get me to hire her. At the same time, a man walked up to the passenger side of my car and asked me if I was looking for that white girl. And so I was confused because the prostitute was white. And so I was like, okay, he's, I don't know why, like her pimps right here. And then he touched his nose. So I realized like, okay, no, this guy's trying to sell me cocaine. This, this woman's trying to get me to hire two completely different things. I'm in a plaza where I'm not supposed to be anyway. I'm a staff sergeant at the time. I have a squad. We're getting ready to deploy. Uh, and in that moment, I recognized that if I was law enforcement and I was watching what was happening right now, I would find some excuse to pull me over. And if he'd had pulled me over, he would have saw that I had an AR-15 loaded up in the trunk with eight mags. I had my loaded Glock on the console. Um, I'd been drinking, uh, kind of really checking the, the typical uh, boxes there. And in that moment, I realized that being there for my guys and deploying with my guys was more important than me trying to seek out this this adrenaline and this sense of of feeling again and and I really did seek it out because in the moments where I could spark it I felt alive in a way that I couldn't feel without those experiences but in that moment I recognized that it it wasn't worth it to me so I stopped that one destructive behavior uh and since then it's it's been um cascading moments of individual behaviors that I've been motivated to stop or adjust for one reason or another. But it always took something like the fear of of losing my guys to get me to really uh, commit to an action. So so once you you sort of dig in, as you described it for me, when we talked previously and you start working on yourself, uh, at some point you transition out of out of the army and then um, you go to the VA. Now, initially, as I understand from talking to you, you didn't apply for VA benefits when you first got out. Is that is that my correct recollection? Um, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't applied for VA benefits. Uh, I didn't apply for VA benefits until essentially a, another vet held my hand and kind of pushed me through the process of applying for benefits. Yeah, and I, you know, a public service announcement that, that I would offer to to our listeners is do that first thing because there's a lot available to you. But that, that's for another time, another segment. But at some point, I know from talking to you, you go to the VA, you do that to ensure that you don't get crosswise with uh, the requirements of Obamacare, and you see your PCM, your primary care manager, for the first time, and you tell your story, and the PCM says to you, hey, we're, we're going we're gonna to get you started with a therapist. Is that, is that a pretty good summary? Yeah, they um, they suggested that I go to the mental health department upstairs, and I did. And actually, my my first appointment was with a psychiatrist, and then they they brought in the therapist shortly after. How how that first session go, James? Um, if if I'm being completely honest, I mean, at the time, I it, I know that I was in the room with well-meaning people. Uh, it did seem like they were overloaded with what was on their plate. Um, and, and oftentimes, I, f I would find when I was sitting down with mental health care professionals, I would find that they were interacting more with, with checklists or systems than they were with me. And so I would still feel 
detached from them. I would, I would often leave the appointments feeling like I might not have gotten what I needed from that appointment. Um, but then with a little bit of persistence, I, I found the right people. And as soon as I found the right people, I was like, oh, this, this is what this is supposed to be. And they are within the VA. And uh, I think the VA has done a ton to improve um, today where they were three years ago and five years ago. I, I think they're constantly improving. Um, and I understand the stigmas that some vets may have against the, uh, the VA, but I, I would I would recommend that if anybody hasn't gone there yet, that that they do. It's it it really is worth it, and it's continues to be helpful for me today. Um, and now I I love my therapist and psychiatrist. I mean they're 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 great. How did you know? Uh, let, let me just emphasize that initially. I mean you you still speak with your therapist, right? Well, you check in every once in a while, see how things are going. Mm-hmm. But how did you know you found the right one? I mean that's really important. We don't want a vet to think that when I get that first appointment, I got to see that person, and then that's the end of the story. I'm, you know, I got no choices. How did you know once you made the decision to seek another therapist? How did you know you found the right one? Yeah, and I, I think it varies for everyone. I, I think everybody's looking for that right fit. Um, but I know personally, I I like to challenge myself in quite a few ways, and when I'd met a therapist that asked me what I was looking to accomplish worked with me to set tangible goals and then would continue to link up with me and hold me accountable to the things that I'd already stated I wanted to do. For example, I know that I, my mental health is better when I'm regularly working out. It's just, I feel better about myself. I have a more positive outlook. And so something as simple as my therapist asking me when the last time I worked out was, is something that holds me accountable because not only do I realize, oh, I haven't worked out in two weeks, but at the same time, I know in another month or two, she's going to ask me again when the last time I worked out was. So it's going to motivate me to do what I already want to do. Um, so for me, that was the right fit. Somebody that just helps me stay accountable to myself. And so as I, as I hear you, it, it's that the therapist was, was interested in you and not some checklist or not their story, but they were interested in your story. Fair statement? Yeah. Yeah. I would say that's a fair statement. And I mean, I'd it comes with some caveats. I understand that, especially with mental health, they have a hard time really trying to to get the the analytics and trying to measure progress. So there are, you know, those surveys on a scale of one to five. You know, where are you today with this? I, I understand that that's necessary, and that's something I still do on a regular basis. But um, but it's it's not the focus of the therapy, and it feels like a personal conversation every time I have a meeting with them. Okay, I hope you're patient with me for two more questions. Um, sure, yeah. I've asked you these questions before, and it's not that I don't remember them, but I was so sort of inspired. I mean, even, even as I get more uh, senior, um, I look for inspiration, right? And, and, and we all should. So, so my, my next to the last question is for the vet who is saying what you and I talked about before. Hey, I'm good. I got this. Good to go, which it... For, for the soldiers, it's a, that can say any number of things. Usually it means nothing, but it, 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 it can cover a lot of res- responses. But yet that vet who might say that could be struggling with the consequences of a, a trauma. What, what do you say to them to help them start that? You know, it's, it's like one, one foot in front of the other. What do you say to get them to take that, that's, that first step down the path? Yeah, I, I think um, 
there's there's an issue of isolation that almost needs treated in a different way than individuals that might be a little less isolated. Uh, when I think about individuals with family members and they're looking to improve those relationships, I, I find a lot of individuals looking at their family and saying, well, I, I protect my family, I keep my family safe. Um, when, you know, in, in this new post-military environment, you know, safety might not be, you know, the, the most ever pressing issue in those situations. You know, there's the emotional development of your loved ones being there connected with them in the moment, being able to be vulnerable enough that they feel that they have a connection to you. I think those are things that we all want, but it's something that we really have to be honest with ourselves and, and look at, um, you know, those relationships with our loved ones and make sure that, you know, as with everything, we're continuing to evolve as individuals because it, for me personally, I mean, it took one thing to be successful in combat. It takes something very different to be successful in my current life. So just making sure I'm always looking for those things and leaning into them. And for individuals um, that might think that, you know, and no, I'm good, I, I got it our show Modern Warrior Live that we created, we really hope that that can act as a test case for that. Um, it's Now, you, you just stole my thunder, man. <laughs> I was going to get into that. 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 And that's how we're going to wrap this up. Um, I told the audience at the outset that, like, who knew? Who knew? I found my next chapter. It took a while, some false starts. Importantly, you found your next chapter. I, I want you to wrap this podcast up by talking about what Modern Warrior Live is and your, your role in it. Uh, Open-ended question, but, but I want folks to know that's how you and I connected, and, and I want them to go see that show and, and help connect with their right next chapter. So talk about Modern Warrior Live a little bit. Yeah, thanks. And if I'm being honest, Modern Warrior Live came out of a sense of obligation. Um, you know, I was out there when I would be asked to speak for Veterans Day or Memorial Day, um, you know, I, I was out there, found myself often trying to fight the stigma of veterans dealing with post-traumatic stress as damaged or as liabilities. Um, through a mutual friend, I ended up connecting with a musician named Dominic Farinacci, and he'd asked me to work with him essentially on a, a music video the film crew. Is the film crew from The Deadliest Catch. He, he's, uh, he's a pretty cool guy. And so he had this amazing team put together. Um, I felt like I either needed to try and be part of that or I needed to stop complaining about what I was seeing as that narrative. So he offered me final edit. We worked on that. And then from that, some supporters kept coming around. People wanted us to, to share more. They wanted to fund more. And so today we have a touring stage productions called Modern Warrior Live. Um, it is entertainment. It stands on its own at performing arts centers. We've done over 120 shows around the country. Uh, been everywhere from Amazon headquarters to Library of Congress to mental health clinics um, to, you know, hospitals and, of course, the performing arts centers uh, in New York and around the rest of the country. Uh, our goal there is to, to use entertainment to, to highlight the concept of post-traumatic growth, to really lean into the idea that you know, these traumas and dealing with these traumas are normal effects of what we had been through. And, you know, that that's not the end of it. There's, 
if we can lean into the idea of growth through an ad adversity, we say, you know, in society, adversity provides a growth opportunity, then something like combat trauma and dealing with mental health shouldn't be any different, in my opinion. Um, you know, I think that uh, people always had it right when people would think of concepts like forged in combat. Um, and I think that's something that we just need to get back to and we need to recognize that dealing with mental health is just another fold in that forging i can't top what you just said but as you know lawyers like to have the last word so i'm going to take that opportunity for our listeners you, you just got to trust me i'm your lawyer you can trust me i want you to find information on modern warrior live going to that performance may in fact be your first step down your journey your path it certainly opened my eyes to the work that I need to do to help our veterans get down that path. So I just strongly encourage all of you to, to look at the schedule for Modern Warrior Live, see if you can catch a performance. It is powerful and it's absolutely worth your time. James, I hope this has been worth your time today. Uh, it certainly, as you know, I can talk to you all day about everything. And it's, it's because it's such a powerful story and your willingness to tell it. So I just thank you for being my first guest on my first podcast. I look forward to continue to work with you as we help the vets who, who are listening find their right next chapter and take that first step on that path. So thanks for being with us today. It's an honor. Thank you for having me, Butch. Pleasure. See you next time, brother. See you soon. This has been the Justice for Vets podcast when thank you is not enough. Hosted by retired Major General Butch Tate. This podcast is made possible with funding from the Bureau of Justice Assistance. Thanks for listening.